Hello and welcome to STP Talks, a series of conversations with academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today, my guest, speaking from Memphis, Tennessee, is Patrick Harris, chairman of the American Solidarity Party, a party which is quite similar to the SDP in many ways. We discuss the American political scene, the problems of big tech and crony capitalism, the folly of recent foreign military interventions, and finally, the hope which our type of politics brings for the future. I hope you'll enjoy the show. Welcome back to SDP Talks. My guest today is Patrick Harris, who's chairman of the American Solidarity Party. Now, if there is a party in uh, the United States that's similar to the SDP, it's probably this one. So I'm looking forward to talking uh, to Patrick about a number of issues. So first question, Patrick, could you tell us something about uh, the American Solidarity Party? Uh, sure. So the, uh, the American Solidarity Party is a, um, it's a grassroots party. It's uh, participated in the last couple of presidential elections uh, in the United States. It's only about 10 years old. And uh, it's a party uh, in the Christian democratic tradition, which, um, as you probably know, is a uh, political tradition with a storied history uh, in, in continental Europe and in other parts of the world. Um, but for a lot of historical reasons that we could get into, it's not actually been uh, very represented, at least not under that name, uh, in the English speaking world, uh, including the United States. And uh, <clears throat> for our members, uh, latching on to that idea, that idea of Christian democracy was a way to uh, articulate something that was missing in uh, the American political landscape that uh, in, in many ways is very similar to what the SDP is about, a more culturally traditional style of politics that cares about social solidarity, hence the name. In common with us, you also, um, in conventional terms, probably breach the, the left and right divide, don't you, and, and offer a, a blend or a combination of policies which people would regard as left and right. Yes, absolutely. We um, we can't really be classified as entirely as a left-wing party or a right-wing party, or even really as a centrist party. We, we, um, we hope to break the, uh, the spectrum a little bit in, in that sense. It's interesting that you, you're skeptical about describing yourselves as centrist, because we are as well. And it's, it's something that you, people tend to sort of uh, bracket us there. But I, I personally, I really dislike the term, and I think the I think the um, centrism now is actually quite extreme in some ways. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would, because often what people take centrist to mean, especially uh, in the commentariat, refers to a basically an, an elite position that falls between the, the left and right sides of the political spectrum that tends to be just more neoliberalism. Uh, in both the social and economic spheres. That's often what people take a centrist position to mean. And uh, there's really, there's no shortage of that in our institutions. And so if we are centrist, it's of a very different kind than that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because underneath that, there's an assumption that um, say, uh, you know, right-wing economics sits in some way with uh, a sort of um, culturally traditional outlook. Um, we would say that it flatly doesn't. I mean, in fact, the the, the history of the last 30 or 40 years pretty much proves that um, you know, unfettered liberal economics is not very friendly to some of the things that we cherish, like the family. Would you agree with that? We absolutely would. And, and part of our politics is to promote 
the centrality of the family in public policy and the the uphill battle that we face is in convincing people that um, sort of a laissez-faire approach to economics uh, not only doesn't have to go along with that, but it often is actively antagonistic to it. Um, and so we're pursuing a, a different approach that is conservative in the sense that it's looking at the centrality of the family or family values, if you will, but understanding that there has to be an economic underpinning um, to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the interesting thing is why so few people on the traditional right um, fail to see the connection there. And um, I, I don't know, do you think they just haven't thought about it very carefully or they're missing something? Or are they just, have they just drunk the neocon sort of Kool-Aid? What was going on there? Well, and part of it is the uh, electoral system in the United States is so strongly biased towards the two major parties, towards the duopoly, even more so, I, I would say, than it is in the UK, that um, it, tends to force people to think in binaries. And so they see um, people who are more culturally, more culturally traditional see the other side of the aisle on the left and they see people that are an antagonistic to them on you know, traditional values on issues like a, you know, abortion and now you know, trans rights and things like that, or, um, or that they see as you know, attacking kind of tr traditional conceptions of patriotism and so on. And, um, they recoil from that and the conservative movement has been very effective over a long period of time um, at forging you know, that kind of perspective and making it seem natural for that to go along with libertarian economics. And there's really no reason that it should be that way. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, I, and I, you know, I have a, a, an eldest uh, a son who lives in the States and, and I, I follow American politics reasonably closely and subscribe to a couple of journals uh, from the States. And um, I would say, look at the, it's the strength of the, uh, the market participants, which is a problem. Uh, you know, the, the, the market has been, you know, the theory is that you just leave the market to its own devices. But, you know, actually what happens then is you get fewer but larger uh, 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 entities dominating it. And you look at something like, you know, I'll give you an example, something like, the opioid epidemic, which a lot of people talk about in the States. I mean, how much on that particular question, how much do you think that's partly the result of just too much power with the big pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, if you look into what has happened with the opioid e epidemic, it's been some utterly appalling behavior by some very powerful institutions, um, corporations that you know have been able to essentially buy off a large part of the medical uh, field um, over a period of years. And um, it, it's something that really cries out for a response. And I think um, a lot of people, especially at the state and local levels are starting to realize that even if they are coming from you know, very conservative political backgrounds. And that's just a microcosm of a lot of other things that are going on in American society where over the last several decades, uh, corporate power has been allowed to run rampant. And so there is a need for an overcorrection or a need for a correction there. And there's no contradiction between that and, you know, culturally conservative priorities as we see it. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I also think that the, the failure, as you say, of, the two, of your two party system and to some extent ours is, is a real problem there because um, you've got to offer an alternative because people actually feel powerless. And I, 
again, as a, an observer from the UK, I look at American politics and I wouldn't be able to choose really uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans in terms of who is in the pocket of big industry more. I mean, is that, is that a fair look at it? Or do you think one is genuinely better than the other? Well, so in terms of specifically economic policies, we often find ourselves at, at least modestly better disposed to some of what the Democrats are offering, except that the follow through is usually not there. Um, and part of that is because, as you suggest, they are very much just as in bed with corporate interests as the Republicans are. The Republicans are perhaps just a little bit more ideological about it. Um, and, and, and you are beginning to see as well some populist impulses on the right that are at least suggesting that maybe conservatism is not all about laissez-faire economics. Um, but there too, there has not been that much follow through. Um, you know, you see some interesting things from people like uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who's been attacking tech monopolies. Uh, and for example, uh, Mitt Romney, most recently, uh, the former presidential candidate came out with a plan for a child uh, benefit that was actually very good. Uh, we were fans of that. We've been discussing that a lot. And now a, a different version of that plan has been enacted in our recent coronavirus bill. So you do see some uh, intimations uh, within the major parties of a changing attitude toward economics. Um, some on the right and on, on the left um, as well. But again, I think both major parties are simply so tied to their donor base uh, that there are hard limitations to that. And um, that's part of why people are seeing the need for an electoral alternative. You, yeah, I, I think that's exactly the same here. I mean, I, I, I also agree with you that instinctively, actually, we would certainly labor the Labour Party's economic plan, we'd be you know, uh, more aligned to that broadly. I mean, there, and there are some areas where we're in complete agreement, you know, nationalization of railways, building uh, you know, uh, state sector housing and things. But um, I, I don't, I mean, you know, again, I, I don't know, Biden in, 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 the, in the US on, on uh, big tech, I, I have very, very little faith. And I think big tech, the dominance of, uh, of, of options, literally options uh, on the internet and on platforms is becoming a major problem. And I, do you think he's gonna tackle that? I mean, I would say there's no prospect. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a lot of confidence uh, in his ability or intention to do that. And um, from the right, on the other hand, you do see uh, some conservatives that are beginning to, um, you know, to wake up to the issue of monopoly power, especially when it comes to technology. And part of the reason that they're doing that is because they realize that these companies are so culturally antagonistic uh, to them and to their politics. And, um, and so that in of itself, I, I think is mostly to the good. The, the problem is that um, it still is largely, it's still largely about culture war discourse. That is to say, uh, conservatives often, they don't like Amazon, they don't like Facebook, they don't like these uh, tech platforms that they think are, you know, are censoring them or that you know, don't value what they value. But they're not willing to take that critique of monopoly power often and extend it to, for example, pharmaceutical companies or to big oil or you know, to other, uh, other concentrations of economic power that don't have that same culture war aspect. So, so it's good that people are talking about cracking down on monopolies, but it, they need to take that further to where it's not just about uh, you know, owning the libs, so to speak.
Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think that's true. I think the cultural divide, I mean, there is a total misalignment now uh, between big tech and uh, certainly culturally and, and the what we would call the hinterland, you know, the, the, I guess what you call flyover states. Uh, yeah, there is, and, that, and that's, that's a major problem in itself. But our, our basic idea is that, you know, the market, I mean, I, I've argued, I, you probably would too, that we're, the SDP anyway, is as pro-market as any party in, in the political landscape, any party. We're very pro-market, but the market's got to be safe from itself to some extent. And if you don't regulate it properly, and certainly on the antitrust competition side, if you just sit back, you, you're, I'm actually quite worried about crony capitalism and the you know, alienation, particularly of young people. I mean, if you look in, you know, you're, you've got a lot of young people that are highly politicized, you know, it's not, I mean, in a way that the best of them are looking to vote for Bernie Sanders and people like that, look to those, that type of politics. But, but actually it's, you know, in, in the, there are lots of people that, that take it much further than that. And uh, the danger is, and I think you people have got, we've got to wake up to this, that um, the, the term we use, you know, the market will either be saved by people that are broadly friendly to it, or it's it risks being destroyed by its enemies. Would you would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, you know, we are we are pro market. We are pro private property. We are you know pro allowing people to you know to better themselves and, and their families. But you're right that there is a danger that the the economic system we have simply doesn't give enough people a stake uh, in in its success. And so, yes, the market needs to be regulated. The uh, you know monopolies need to be uh, broken up and we've been influenced in our attitudes towards economics by the um, by the British distributist tradition uh, to some degree as well um, which essentially the idea being that property uh, you know productive property capital is uh, best distributed as widely as possible so that is to say we, we we have a bias towards small businesses towards local concentrations of economic power as opposed to far away, you know, corporate interests. Um, we are, we're interested in expanding, for example, worker cooperatives, uh, other things like that, that give people a ownership stake in the economy. Um, that, and that's something that we use to distinguish ourselves a little bit from both the left and the right, um, because we are pro-market, but we are very much dissatisfied with, um, you know, the concentration of economic power that we see in neoliberal capitalism it's nice that you're keen on the uh distributive tradition because i we are too and i think that's it is the obvious solution if you've got you know massive concentrations of, of wealth and power uh and, and other people are relatively powerless and they don't have a stake in the game and there have been many attempts over the years to, to to change that but actually none really successful i mean in a way thatcherite economics was meant to be about that but it didn't actually work out that way uh, certainly that that strand of thinking is very um uh very important to us and actually i uh, virtually every uh, major speech i give i i, I try to um quote uh, chesterton <laughs> just it's become a joke now there's usually a chesterton quote in there somewhere um can i just ask you about trade about um how um the united states um uh operates within the in the global trade trading system um, we uh, are pretty much alone, I think, uh, as a political party in the UK, arguing for some trade friction. Uh, it's, it's just considered um, almost backward to, to even think about that. But I, our basic idea is that, um, and again, I've, I've, I've made, made the point in articles and speeches, 
before and I often use the um, the train ride from from Penn Station down to Philly and there's a lot of there's a lot of factories there that are, uh, are despoiled and, and derelict and and that's that was the industrial base and the industrial base used to support the the industrial wage which supported the family and it's been gutted and and, and we we just think that the indifference to that is a major problem now do you agree with us that that actually a more domestic focus in industrial policy, which might involve some trade friction, is, is a desirable thing, or, or are you, are you more, more market liberal on that? Um, yeah, so we believe that um, certainly trade in the abstract is, is beneficial, but um, we don't live and work in the abstract, right? Um, and, and in fact, the trade policies that we've seen over the past several decades across the Western world, but uh, including in the United States, have hollowed out so much of that industrial base. And that's partially because they've been directed toward the interests of corporations and their shareholders. And um, now we don't wanna discount that there are gains from trade to consumers and certainly to economies in the developing world. But uh, if we look at uh, how those gains are produced, there is on the one hand, the, you know, the damage to the industrial base in the United States and other Western countries. On the other hand, you have uh, issues with the you know environmental costs and mistreatment of labor and you know in many of the places that the trade is being outsourced to and ultimately it's it's been part of this process of um you know broadly neoliberal changes that have tended to benefit um you know a relatively small group of people and have tended to benefit the financial industry and um so we're not opposed to trade but we do think that um we need a broader sense of who the stake the stakeholders are that are involved, and um, looking at you know those different factors. So preventing hollowing out of domestic industries. So yes, a degree of friction is sometimes desirable. It, it's you know on a case by case basis, but we do need to break out of this kind of econ 101 uh, attitude that. Um, you know, we, we, we look at the, you know, the, the chart and the canned model of how uh, comparative advantage works. And therefore, we know that free trade is always a good thing. Right. I think you, by the sound of it, you're more, yeah, I mean, you've got to be very careful of Ricardian theory, I think, in the real world, as you say, because we live in the real world. And in, in the real world, it's real jobs and, and real trade-offs, as you say. You know, and uh, I mean, in particular, I think um, indifference to trade, which you know, on, on the on the conditions enjoyed by our industrial workers, as against others um, who are competitors, being completely indifferent about the conditions under which those competitors are um, producing goods, is just basically wrong. And I think you know, old-fashioned trade unionists from the 70s and 80s probably have a point there. You know, you can't be indifferent about that, and. Uh, You've got to, in the end, have some sort of idea. I mean, I think the 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 error that's been made is just is people have been completely indifferent about it. Have, have, have had the idea in theory that it always in any situation, you know, if your manufacturing goes uh, east or whatever, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, but you know, I think the pandemic uh, actually exposed um, the fragility of that approach because actually, when we needed, and the states was the same. Uh, when we needed product, we couldn't get it, and we were, we were strategically pretty much hollowed out. And also, the the idea that you can have your economy, you know, manufacturing industry down to sort of eleven percent, which is what it is in the in the UK, um, and the rest of it is just services. But again, you don't really have a you don't really have a, a, a robust economy based on on services. You know, there's got to be more to uh, the economy than rubbing people's feet or or whatever. You know. So, 
<laughs> that's the that's the issue. And um, so, yeah, it sounds as if we're 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 on quite similar ground there. Can I ask you about healthcare because that's an interesting thing? Is I this is one of the things that talking to Americans and talking to a lot of other people in the in the UK, we ended up with a, a universal healthcare system as a product of the um, solidarity, the mobilization of the Second World War, and the Attlee government brought it in. Uh, and there was a lot of opposition to it actually when it came in, but it but it's it's become part of British culture now. So British people think of universal healthcare as a sort of second nature, as part of the the basic, uh, you know, I, I, social and political uh, social architecture. Really, now in the states, it's very different, isn't it? Um, what 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 do you what's your what's your view on the Democrats' various attempts to? You know, bring in a, a degree of sharing and a, a degree of universality. Where do you stand on on healthcare? So the basic impulse that uh, you know the Democrats bring to the table that we share is that health coverage is something that should be ensured. That there is a social interest in that. Um, that it's not acceptable just to leave it up to the market and let people fall through the cracks because the, you know it's one of the basic uh, services that allow people to participate in society. And um, so in, in that sense, um, for us, uh, health policy is integral to our platform as a way of upholding human dignity, like everything else, uh, you know, in our, um, in our principles. But um, what has happened, you know, during the Obama administration, you had an attempt to introduce universal coverage, um, sort of working within the existing uh, U.S. health system, which is largely based on private insurance providers alongside the, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, which are the uh, publicly funded providers we have for the old and uh, the poor, essentially. Um, and it, on net, it was an improvement, um, but it was, it was terribly inefficient. And in order to get Obamacare, you know, as we call it, through the, um, Congress, essentially they had to buy off insurance companies by um, making sure that um, everyone was required to be covered, which uh, that mandate has now been uh, invalidated, essentially. Um, I, believe, I believe it it passed scrutiny of the Supreme Court, but then was repealed by uh, the Republican Congress during the Trump administration. So the whole system, as it was set up, is in shambles. Um, and so we, we do need additional uh, healthcare reform. And our, our approach has been to say there are any number of ways that that could happen, uh, but the goal needs to be universal health coverage. And we would prefer uh, something perhaps a little more decentralized ideally than what the Democrats would pass because um, perhaps the, the, one, the one aspect of uh, Republican skepticism of health reform that I would share is simply that our federal government's capable of administering it well. <laughs> but, so, um, but in, in terms of goals, we're aligned, but in terms of mechanisms, we're flexible. It's interesting. I'm, I, I've always found this, this topic interesting because the, the, the total, the aggregate spend uh, on health in the United States is much higher than it is in the UK, uh, you know, um, public and private. Um, and yet, you know, you, you're, you know, from a sort of left point of view, obviously the, you, there's never been a, a consensus to establish a universal system. And, and, and I, I accept there's a lot of um, uh, barriers uh, for vested interests in the way uh, that would stop you doing that. But do you think that to some extent, the, the reason for, 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 for a universal system never having been established is simply that the, 
the center of gravity on this is a little bit different to, to say where it is in the UK for historical reasons. And, and you, you know, you've got a you've got a more sort of libertarian frontier type um, outlook, I, I suppose. And, and and it just comes down to something that I'm going to say sounds quite crude, which is that in different parts of a state or a city, a lot of Americans just say, I'm not paying that. I'm not paying their bills. Absolutely. I mean, the um, the diversity of the United States, geographic and racial and ethnic, um, I think most people would agree has been an impediment in some ways to um, welfare state programs that rely on that sense of social solidarity, because there's always a sense that, you know, I don't want to pay for those people, whoever they are. <laughs> um, and, and certainly, you know, we we, uh, we think that that can be overcome, or we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. But uh, but historically, that has been an issue. And also, as you say, uh, the United States is simply a historically a very liberal in, in the broad sense country. There is that uh, a little bit of that frontier ethos, and um, there are a lot of vested interests. But I think it's important to note that the vested interests are not just you know insurance companies or you know the medical lobby or that sort of thing. It's also people who are doing okay under the existing system, because most people do have health coverage and most people are reasonably satisfied with it, even though, uh, even for those of us who, you know, who do have adequate health coverage, it's extremely frustrating to deal with, I think, in, in a way that many, many people in, in Britain would find uh, mystifying. Um, but, but people are afraid of what change would bring, um, because they, um, they don't necessarily trust a new program to leave them you know, as well or better off than they are. Um, and so that that in particular is a challenge as well. You, you have to deal with the status quo bias um, just of a lot of ordinary people, not just institutions. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's, that sounds convincing. I, I think it's phenomenally difficult to change a, a, an embedded status quo where people have got interest and in the system is as the system is. Very, very difficult indeed. Um, can I move on? The, on, on looking at your website, um, the the... Some of the most, I mean, a lot of, there are a lot of similarities between our parties, huge amount of similarities. Uh, one, one interesting thing when you're talking about, uh, uh, about value divides and also disparities of various kinds uh, between different groups, some of the language you use, you, you, you talk about system, systemic injustice, historic injustice, uh, and so on. Now, we would, we would say from, from our look at it, uh, that that just sounds a little bit like sort of critical race theory, which which we from our side, because we're busy importing it at the moment, and it's caused a lot of problems. Do you would that be? Am I am I uh, worrying unduly there? Some of the language. Yeah, I mean there may be some differences in in emphasis uh, in our platforms there, and 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 I'll say uh, I realize that a lot of American racial discourse has been you know imported or exported abroad in ways that I think are not always very healthy for the recipients <laughs> simply because we're, we're we're different countries and uh, and and I I'm very much very much a patriot but sometimes I feel that uh, America exports all the worst things about itself except except uh, uh, in the 1950s jazz <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah certainly certainly exceptions there um, yeah I mean r race is a um, is an issue that um, it, it has become globalized in a way, um, and and I so so I, I won't necessarily speak to how it should play out in, in other countries because I think a lot of that globalization of discourse, as I said, is not actually especially constructive. That um, you know the kind of Americanization of politics uh, in you know in other parts of the Western world, but as far as our own attitude, our own attitudes towards uh, you know racial injustice. Um, 
our, our, our strategy, our perspective, our, you know, principles have been to say, this is a real thing in American history that there are, you know, historically based disadvantages, um, that, uh, minority groups face and that we need to deal with that. That is not necessarily the same thing as us, you know, taking the, the full on, you know, critical race theory approach that sort of interpret interprets, um, the entire issue of race relations or those disadvantages in terms of a kind of, you know, hierarchy of oppressor and oppressed and, um, that kind of ideology, um, it, it can have insights, but it also flattens reality like any ideology does, I suppose. It's an interesting lens, isn't it? We, I mean, uh, as I say, I mean, I think whether we want it or not, it is imported. And uh, certainly here, um, some of the concepts, uh, which may be more applicable, and maybe you can argue about it, but may be more applicable in the United States. Um, it, it's been difficult to, to, to get, say, you know, uh, industrial town, people living in industrial towns in the north of England, uh, you know, who, who's, who, who have working class um, heritage and backgrounds and they're working down mines and things. Very difficult to, to, um, for them to accept the idea of white privilege just, just dulled up to them now. I mean, it almost, it literally almost just to many people doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and the other thing I think, um, which I think the general discourse, particularly since last summer, where I think we, we all lived through a, what can only be sort of described as some sort of moral panic. Um, there's just a tendency in a, in a sort of crude and unnuanced way to, 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 to regard any um, disparity or, or difference as a result of uh, some sort of prejudice of some kind, instead of uh, just a, a difference in, in group preference or choices or whatever. And that, I think that's a point we've tried to, to make here. And we've also tried on this on, as a party to try and argue for um, a civil toleration of differences, actually, because it's the only way we're going to get along. Absolutely. And, and, and in that sense, um, you know, we've tried to be, um, I suppose you could say, uh, conscientious objectors to some of the conflicts over, you know, cancel culture and so on, because um, because a lot of culturally conservative politics in the United States, I, I think, has become purely reactionary to that kind of woke discourse um and um you know so everyone on twitter right now is talking about you know they're pulling the dr seuss books for uh you know for racist depictions or things like that and um and, and i think you know a lot of those kinds of you know if you want to call it politically correct or whatever a, a lot of those controversies are, are are worth laughing at and um and, and i think the problem with them is that um people think that you know taking your position on Dr. Seuss, one way or another, is a substitute for a meaningful politics, um, and, and and it simply isn't. And so, you know, what we're trying to do is to build a multiracial coalition built around solidarity over real material issues. Um, you know, things like wages and healthcare and and police reform, for that matter. But those are things that um, actually affect people's everyday lives, and and. And they don't necessarily affect uh, Americans in different groups equally, but they affect all of them. And so the um, the approach that we've taken is to say, yes, racism is a real thing. We can, you know, we need to look at that. Um, but the way that we look at that is not going to be, you know, sort of pervasively based on slicing and dicing people into these different identity categories. Um, the, you know, we're the American Solidarity Party. We are all Americans. 
Yeah, and that's a very good approach. And actually, I think you're quite right to to look at detail policy instead of um, uh, you know falling falling in the in the sort of you know the moral panic wave because actually in the end that's it's been proved. I mean, in the places like Camden, New Jersey, have proved that you can um, you can implement police reform and have success on all the metrics if you do it. And why not? You know, and, and that's actually a sensible contribution to the debate instead of everyone getting um, too excited and too too obsessed actually with race uh, over every single matter. You know, um, I, finally, I'd like to one other thing that I, I picked up in your um, <clears throat> manifesto uh, and your, your your ideas that is very very similar to our approach. I'm going to have to find something that's different. <laughs> um, uh, is is your um, your scepticism as I've read it, if I've read it correctly, about successive uh, foreign interventions, uh, military interventions, which, which again, I, we'd argue have just been utterly disastrous for, for everyone concerned. I mean, not just, you know, for the United States or Britain in a minor way has, has been involved in them as well, but for the recipient countries and the rest of it. I think, um, uh, uh, can you tell us something about your thinking behind that? Because not, you know, not all, I mean, the, you know, historically the Democrats and the Republicans have been as bad as each other on this. Absolutely. I mean, this is an area where um, it, it really is is not about the traditional left-right spectrum. Um, there is a foreign policy consensus, uh, you know, in the American political establishment that we think has been disastrous. Um, the, you know, the Iraq war was the most flagrant example of, of the failures of, of that kind of consensus, um, per, perhaps even moving a little bit outside the consensus. But, but we saw during, uh, you know, during that conflict, how ultimately most Democrats fell in line, um, you know, behind the Republicans and critics on both the left and the right were shunted aside. And the, you know, the foreign policy institutional establishment, the military diplomats, <coughs> excuse me, people fell in line. Um, and that, typically happens uh, every time a new intervention <laughs> comes down the pike. Um, there is just an assumption in uh, American foreign policy that our interests as a nation are essentially limitless and that um, we have a compelling reason to become involved in the internal politics of nations almost anywhere in the world. Um, and that our primary, primary way of engaging is uh, through military action or the threat of it. And um, we simply don't think, um, we don't think that serves American interests um, and, or our values. Yeah, I think you're, you're bang on there. I think you're, you're totally right. I, I just, it, it, you know, a review of the history of it, even the recent history of it. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't have to look at, you don't have to have got through all the 20 hours of Ken Burns' wonderful um, Vietnam War documentary. But if you, you know, I, I've, I mean, it's a big take, but I think all, you know, perhaps all citizens everywhere should 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 take the time to have a look at that documentary, but you've got to be a skeptic, <clears throat> and you've got to ask yourself, you know, the aims um, that you're trying to achieve. You, you're even likely to. When I look at the Iraq War and, and uh, Bush and Blair, I just see um, just just blind utopianism, just really foolish utopianism and folly. And uh, and that you know, I I objected to it here, but not many people did. Yeah, you know, th there was a um, there was a sense that. Um you know, the Iraq war was somehow cynically motivated, you know, many of the left-wing protesters at the time were saying, you know, you know, no, no, no war for oil. And, and while there were, there were certainly people who did very well out of that conflict, uh, as you say, I don't think that's primarily what it was in a way it was worse. <laughs> it, it really was 
a uh, it really was an ideologically motivated uh, in intervention. And um, again, based on this sense that uh, American military power can, you know, go forth abroad in search of monsters to destroy, and that um, this somehow is is going to improve things. And it's simply um, it's not conservative in any sense whatsoever. Um, and it's uh, and it, it's bad for other countries and it's bad for the United States. It's, it's been a tremendous expenditure of blood and treasure and it has made Americans less safe um, as a result. And, you know, we continue to see, you know, um, U.S. military interventions in Iraq and Syria and, and Yemen and other places that are often revolve around solving problems that were caused by previous interventions, right? Yes, no, you get into a cycle. I mean, it really, it's been, it's, it has been totally disastrous. And uh, it's very difficult to, I've, you know, you've got to, from an American point of view, ask what, what, how and why has it been in your interest to take the burden on for every piece of territory everywhere, particularly because actually the United States is a, a, tigu a contiguous geographical entity, which is, is geographically pretty safe. And I've never really, I've never really understood it. I mean, only an extremist. Um, you know, would you, would you, you know, uh, the sort of situation that we faced in 1939? Yes, obviously. But the, but the, the, the intervention to impose liberal democracy strikes me as extraordinarily foolish. One of the things that again may unite us as parties is a, is a strong skepticism of utopias of various kinds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, with regard to foreign policy in particular, you know, you had that moment at the end of the Cold War where, uh, you know, the Western democracies stood triumphant as, as they thought, and that just encouraged a very unique kind of hubris that, um, you know, it, it could only be onward and upward from there for the United States uh, and, and, and for, um, you know, Western democracies. And so that... That, that was a, a, a particularly destructive kind of utopianism. And, um, and that's, um, that attitude, I think, is something that um, both of our parties would reject, not just in foreign policy, but also in, in other areas when it comes to uh, economic policy, for example. Um, you know, some of our, um, some of our policy preferences are, tend to be coded as left wing, but they are not left wing of the utopian variety. They're about, uh, you, you could say they're policies that are conservative in the sense that we want to conserve the things that actually matter, which is to say, you know, families and local communities and, you know, um, sort of the, the rhythms of ordinary life. Um, and, and I think that's something that we, uh, that we have in common. And, and, and indeed, that's something that perhaps is um, a major part of the British labor tradition, as opposed to, you know, more, you know, Marxist, uh, traditions that, that I think is very valuable. I, I totally agree with that. I think the, the, um, the combination of some moderate, but, but solid, moderate but solid uh, um, center-left economics uh, sit beautifully with uh, a basic uh, social conservative outlook. And I think uh, previous generations of labor politicians and where, you know, the SDP is a, a labor offshoot historically, uh, I think we'd, we'd buy into that tradition totally, and it used to be part of it. I think the big problem is that um, on the left, really, uh, it's the progressive liberal uh, element which, which now dominates and, and uh, preoccupies uh, people, and, and, and they've, lost, they've lost the connection with the, the desire to basically um, preserve and protect the, the foundations. And I think we, we're on the same ground there. 
Listen, Patrick, thanks very much. It's been wonderful talking to you. Uh, and, and I'd urge our members to have a look at the American Solidarity Party. And I'm delighted that the internet connection has held up well between here and Memphis, Tennessee. So thank you very much for joining us on SDP Talk. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of SDP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at sdp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.